From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with John Lauk, author of the new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest. Just to pick on the University of Minnesota, they have nobody there in a huge history department that teaches the history of the Midwest. By comparison, University of Georgia has about 10 people in their history department who teach about Georgia and the American South. We need to do a better job here of studying our own history. And we also need to convince, you know, those cultural arbiters on the coast to pay more attention to what goes on here. And that's the ultimate plea of my book. Locke discusses this often overlooked region, which he says in the 19th century was the most advanced democratic society that the world had seen to date. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. This show is ostensibly about the Midwest, the culture we create, the culture we consume, the way culture leads to art, to politics, and to history. But the Midwest can be a squishy concept without obvious shape or definition. And my guest today, John Lauk, hopes to change that. He wants to focus on the overlooked cultural story and influence of the Midwest. He teaches history and political science at the University of South Dakota and is the author of the new book, The Good Country, a history of the American Midwest, which seeks to establish a new historical discourse grounded in fair readings of the American past by locating a middle ground in the center of the country. Here is our conversation. So uh, just just to start off, it's it's John Lauk, not John Locke, right? Lauk, that is correct. (laughs) I listened to an interview when I was uh, doing some prep, and one of them called you John Locke, I think. And I thought, wow, those that would be big shoes to fill uh, to work in academia and go by John Locke. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And then apparently there was some guy who won American Survivor or whatever that show is, and his name was John Locke. So people kept asking me about that for many years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've been making a name for yourself uh, separate from John Locke uh, as sort of like the premier historian uh, and really proponent of the Midwest. So I want to start with the Midwest as a concept because I use it in the description for this show. It's a cultural show that's sort of about uh, and centered in the Midwest. But I feel like there's a lot of wiggle room with that term, and people resist defining it too strictly. So what exactly would you say your operating definition of the Midwest is? Well, I will uh, I'll stretch, I'll uh, sketch out the parameters for you, but I want to give a quick shout-out to Nebraska and Omaha real quick because last weekend – I was stranded because of all these snowstorms, uh, diverted to Omaha. They were out of rental cars. You probably heard about this problem. And so I put a note on Twitter saying, does anybody have a car? Because I want to get home on Christmas Eve to take my mom to midnight mass. And I got about five offers in short order, including a young man in Omaha who said, sure, you can take my car. And um, I just think that encapsulates in many ways the neighborliness and helpfulness of a lot of Midwesterners and people in Nebraska. And so shout out to that young man who helped me out of a, of a big pickle. Yeah. I'm I'm Uh, glad to hear that Twitter was used for good. (laughs) Yes. uh, It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Um, I also wanted to say that uh, there's a very nice farm couple in Nebraska who have been collecting art for many, many years on their farm, agrarian art, as they call it, or art 
geared toward the rural Midwest. And they recently gave a big uh, donation to the um, art museum in Lincoln. And I read about this in the Omaha paper and I emailed these folks and I said, I really love a couple of these paintings. Would you let me use them for the cover of the book? And they said, yes. And so um, the Moseman uh, farm family who lives out in central Nebraska, uh, thanks to you uh, for providing the cover art for this book. But now back to your question, Tom, um, the, Midwest roughly stretches from eastern Ohio, and there's a debate about that eastern slice of Ohio and whether or not that should be in the Midwest because it's fairly Appalachia-oriented. But we'll leave that fine distinction aside for a second. Uh, It starts there, and then it moves west, and it includes uh, the eastern halves, of the Dakotas, Nebraska, and Kansas. This is easy to figure out in South Dakota because the state is bisected right down the middle by the Missouri River. Uh, But in um, Nebraska, if you want a better sense of where the Midwest ends and the Great Plains begin, think roughly of the 100th meridian. There's a a famous book uh, that was written 40 or 50 years ago called Beyond the 100th Meridian. And the author describes how things get different farther west. It gets drier. It gets flatter. There's more cattle ranching. There's more Indian reservations. There's more mountains. That's where the plains west begins. But eastern Nebraska and the Dakotas and Kansas, that's definitely part of the Midwest. And uh, the, the 12 states that comprise the Midwest are, of course, the ones I mentioned, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Missouri, I think are the finals. Um, You can think of this uh, in sports terms as the old Big Ten. Um, Unfortunately, they recently added teams like like, uh, Rutgers to the Big Ten, which was a huge mistake. But you, you can get the sense. It's that center of the country above the Ohio River. Now, there are certain little nuances and variations about where exactly these boundaries should be drawn on the southern edge and on the uh, eastern edge and the western edge, which we can talk about. Uh, but that's the, that's the core of the Midwest as I see it. Well, it, I didn't really realize until I got your book that the Midwest had been conceptualized as, you know, from the beginning of the country, from the, the origins of even the Continental Congress, there was sort of this conception of what this might be, right? Uh, I don't think I don't think it's yeah. something people generally know about, even if they lived here their whole lives. Yeah, I think this is worth going through so people have a better sense of it. So, of course, during the Revolution, most of the action was on the eastern seaboard in the traditional 13 colonies. But as a result of the revolution and lots of other events that we don't need to get into, um, after the war, the United States ends up with this big chunk of territory um, just west of the Appalachians above the Ohio River, which they called the Northwest Territory, which, if you're looking at the world from the American colonies, makes sense as a term. Um, And... That uh, was 
first settled in the early 19th century. But as the country moved westward, all of a sudden, that's really not the Northwest anymore. People start calling Minnesota and the Dakotas the Northwest. And then, of course, later, the Northwest becomes Seattle and Washington and Oregon. So all of a sudden, people start calling what was the Northwest Territory. They start calling it the Old Northwest. And then railroads came. And as the railroads traversed the country, uh, people would talk about taking the railroad all the way out to the far west, which would be California, say. Well, that left a west in the middle before you get to the far west. So people would call this part of the country the Middle West. And then that gets shortened into the Midwest in the early 20th century. Um, so there's kind of a complicated uh, linguistic history or story behind the term Midwest, but this is the most uh, common or the prevailing term now. It's interesting to me in the cultural studies and the prominent culture that really permeates outside of maybe sports, uh, our entertainment and a lot of the, the intellectual elements of our society that the Midwest can be this big center of the country, but it is thought of as basically flyover country. It's often written off, and it seems like this is part of your mission with a lot of your work to sort of address why the Midwest is absent and why it, or why it shouldn't be absent more so. But let's start with the question of why is it? Why do you think the Midwest is considered something that's worth overlooking instead of celebrating and understanding? Well, I think we have a problem in this country in terms of our culture or our culture-producing entities being concentrated on the coasts, and in particular, uh, New York and Los Angeles or Hollywood. I mean, that's where a lot of our mass culture comes from. And, I mean, people in New York determine uh, what big books get published, uh, what books get highlighted, what books make the uh, top ten list, um, what books get talked about, what books win the prizes. And, of course, people in Hollywood determine what the movies are going to be and what the themes of the movies are going to be. And so our culture is kind of warped in a coastal direction. And, you know, that means that the center of the country doesn't get talked about as much. Now, that doesn't mean there's no culture here. I mean, we have local culture. We have local historical societies and local um, uh, operations that publish books and university presses are very helpful with this. But there is a dominant culture um, that is based on the coasts and sort of run by coasties. And, you know, they don't have the level of interest in the center of the country that I think they should. Now, there's a couple of uh, ways to approach that problem. We can try to persuade them and convince them that they should do more work uh, about the center of the country. Um, there's that filmmaker from Omaha who has drawn some attention to the center of the country, whose name is escaping me right now. Alexander Payne. Uh, yes. Alexander Payne. Unfortunately, you know, some of his works are a little, you can tell that sometimes they are made or written in a way to kind of curry favor to a coastal audience, and they indulge in stereotypes that are a little unfortunate in my view. However, 
he is from Omaha and he does, you know, give some attention to the center of the country. So that's one way to do it. Or we can be more um, thoughtful about creating our own culture. And this is a discussion that goes back a century or more. Um, There was a very strong movement in the early parts of the 20th century called regionalism, cultural regionalism, literary regionalism. And um, there was a concerted effort to start magazines, little magazines, journals, and begin to publish uh, the thoughts of people in the Midwest. And, you know, you get voices coming out of the Midwest. Nebraska has Beth Streeter Aldrich, and of course, most famously, Willa Cather. Um, But of course, Willa Cather moves east also. Um, But that, I think, is something these Midwestern states need to take more seriously. Um, You know, supporting these local um, cultural institutions. I'm the editor of a journal called Middle West Review based at the University of South Dakota, which attempts to do that and publish some of these voices. But of course, it doesn't have the platform that a lot of um, coastal cultural institutions do. And so it's hard to compete. But but that's what we need to do. I I think a, a more simple way to approach this would be to have universities in the Midwest take seriously their local and regional culture and make sure that they're teaching the history of the Midwest. Um, for example, just to, just to pick on the University of Minnesota, they have nobody there in a huge history department that teaches the history of the Midwest. That's unfortunate. By comparison, University of Georgia has uh, about 10 people in their history department who teach about Georgia and the American South. So we need to do a better job here um, of studying our own history. And we also need to convince, you know, those cultural arbiters on the coast to pay more attention uh, to what goes on here. And that's the ultimate plea of my book. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with John Lauk, author of the new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest. What is the Midwest to you? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Is part of the reason why somewhere in the Midwest might not encourage people to study the Midwest or Midwestern history because there's less of a a chance for it to essentially become a big book or become a big project because the the assumption there being that people on coasts would be not particularly interested in it, even if it was a well-presented history? Well, I think every historian, every writer wants a very compelling, dramatic narrative. And of course, if you're talking about the American South, obviously that's a very dramatic story. Um, you know, a story of rebellion and breaking away. And of course, the issue of slavery and the great injustice, injustices associated with that. So it is a dramatic story. And that has narrative drive and that draws in writers and uh, movie producers, et cetera. I get that. Um, and that probably is a major reason why uh, some of these other places get more attention. However, if your goal is to 
to tell a complete story of the country and an objective story. You can't just focus on the crises and calamities and catastrophes and the drama. You need also to pay attention to the parts of the country where, you know, it may not be as dramatic, um, but, you know, we also need to hear these stories of success and uh, progress and understand that there are places in the country that were quite functional and small d democracy uh, blossomed and took root and grew. Um, but yeah, I mean, you make a very fair point. The, it, it, uh, I've been snowed in the last few days and been surfing Netflix, watching, looking for some of the new movies, and people are just drawn to uh, stories of war and uh, stories. I mean, half of the History Channel right now is uh, World War II stories, which is interesting. I mean, I'm not denying it's interesting, but there's more to our history and our background than just those moments. Uh, the History Channel on a good day is doing things like World War II. Usually when I turn it on, it's aliens and ghosts. <laughs> it's not even history. <laughs> uh, I know. It's funny. Our neighbor to the east, uh, Iowa, has a senior senator, Chuck Grassley. I don't know if you follow this or not, but on Twitter... Every once in a while, he'll get home and turn on the History Channel, and it'll be some crazy conspiracy theory show or alien show, and he'll tweet out these attacks on the History Channel for not doing more real history. It's very funny. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking even as I prepared for this, I mean, who would be somebody who, outside of someone like Alexander Payne, who's making sort of satirical often looks at, uh, at where he came from at his hometown or Nebraska in a whole, as a whole, who would be somebody who's maybe doing – uh, the work of just sort of a, a personal cultural exploration or a personal uh, way to sort of um, to combine how culture is made up of nature, race, identity. And I've been reading um, Wendell Berry's new book, The Need to Be Whole, which does that from the perspective of the South of Kentucky. And I wonder, right. like, we, we don't, I don't know that we really have people doing that in a way that at least is read outside of a, a regional market, right? I mean, is Garrison Keillor the best we have as far as someone even going near that? Well, I think Garrison Keillor was a strong voice for a lot of years and kind of put Minnesota on the map and the rural Midwest. And uh, so he def he definitely filled that role. I mean, I think there are institutions out there doing some of this. University of Nebraska Press down the road from you in Lincoln um, tries to uh, keep uh, something of a regional voice out there and publish regional books, and they should be commended for that. They are the ones who publish our journal, Middle West Review, um, which unfortunately is really the only academic journal that caters to the Midwest as a whole and its history and culture. Um, there is a, a new magazine that was started in northern Missouri a couple of years ago called The New Territory, by a young, dynamic uh, woman who grew up in a small town in Missouri and was frustrated about the lack of opportunities to talk about her state and her culture. The new territory, I think she defines as Missouri and Kansas and, and uh, Nebraska. Um, but it's, it's a great publication. A friend of mine launched something called the Cleveland Review of Books a few years ago, um, so there are some things happening. Uh, however, 
they haven't sort of broken out into the mainstream yet, and they don't get enough attention, um, in my view. And I think part of this is, you know, we one of the things that's really handicapping us in the Midwest, and this is probably true in other regions too, but it seems particularly true here, is the the serious diminishment of Midwestern newspapers like the Chicago Tribune and Des Moines Register, and I assume the Omaha paper, I'm not as familiar with that, but these used to be real powerhouses and they would have many culture editors and writers and book reviewers. And uh, now they've really been so stripped down. Uh, I heard a story yesterday, I was talking to a guy in Springfield, uh, Illinois, and, you know, this is the capital of the state of Illinois. This is a big state. And the local paper there uh, had no reporters on duty for several days one week, and the entire paper was just AP wire stories. I mean, this is the capital of Illinois. I mean, this should be a place with 35 reporters. There's a, there's a, tons of stories in a city like that. But so this is one of the reasons our story is not getting told is the collapse of these local newspapers. I, I should say another source of um, source of cultural strength or regional culture in Midwestern states are state historical societies, and that certainly includes Nebraska. Um, they do a lot of good program. And also you have the Center for Great Plains Studies in Lincoln, which does a lot of programming that's that's wonderful. And they have a journal called uh, Great Plains Quarterly. Of course, that's that's a Plains-oriented journal. So that's, you know, somewhat different than what I'm talking about here in, in terms of the traditional Midwest. But um, I think uh, there are, there is a very basic minimal infrastructure out there, but we need to build it up and support it more. And um, maybe if word gets around about books like this, maybe we'll maybe people will think about investing in this infrastructure a little bit more. So in your book, In the Good Country, you write that the history profession in the United States, many would concede, has become too one-sided, too critical, and too focused on American faults and not sufficiently attentive to what would have been considered great achievements in their proper historical setting. So I wonder, what do you attribute that to and what would be some examples of where this has led to some issues? Well, I don't think it's any grand secret that uh, the history profession tends to lean in one direction and has, you know, has become a little, uh, I don't know how to to say this in the right way, but it's become excessively critical in some ways. It's become, I think a better way to say it is unbalanced because obviously there are a lot of uh, mistakes and sins in the American past, and those ne- need to be recognized and atoned for. But there's also a lot of things that went right, and we really don't talk about those enough. And so what I am trying to do in this book, and it's very difficult, is to include all the good stuff and then all the failings and all the oppression and all the tales of woe that were certainly back there. And I devote long sections of the book and an entire chapter to exploring uh, those failings. Um, 
But you can't just tell one side of the story. You have to blend the evidence together and then render a judgment that you think is as fair as possible. And when you do that, I think the Midwest in relative terms, again, you know, I'm thinking of the American South for one, but also you need to think about other places in the world in the 19th century, which is what this book is focused on. And I, I remember in the early stages of this book, trying to think of ways to convey to my audience, how do you, how, what's the best way for you to understand the achievements in the Midwest? And the best way is in comparative terms. And I spend a little bit of time in the beginning talking, talking about the state of the world when the Midwest came into being and what was going on in places like China and Japan and Russia and Brazil and France and England. So people have a sense of um, what these people in the Midwest thought they were accomplishing. And indeed they were. Um, and we lose, we lose perspective when we just focus singularly on one particular topic in the past. We have to be able to say, well, okay, that's how that was, but how does it compare to other places? And then all of a sudden, at least in, for me, uh, we begin to see that, ah, the advances in voting rights and in civil rights and in land ownership um, and in rights for women and co-education for women. I mean, these are incredible achievements in relative terms. So this is where the... Uh, history profession needs to go in this direction of trying to balance and weigh all of these different factors and pieces of evidence. That's the only way to render fairly the American past. When we just focus on one side, it doesn't do anybody any good. And it, it doesn't become a useful exercise in logic and the balancing of evidence and the pluses and minuses from the past. And I think it's hurting the history profession. If you look in the current issue of Middle West Review, which just came out a couple weeks ago, the lead editorial that I wrote is about the collapse of the history profession and the loss of hundreds and hundreds of jobs at universities in history departments. And I'm making this plea that we have to reverse this trend because, you know, what's going to improve our discourse in this country and what's going to repair the civic uh, fabric? What's going to help is if people have a better understanding of their nation, a more complete understanding of its history, um, if they all have, you know, each side has totally one-sided views of the past, well, that's just a recipe for more polarization. So all of this is of a piece. And unfortunately, at the moment, we're going in the wrong direction. I'm talking with John Lauk, author of the new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. 
to make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which may be a zero, in which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can find the backlog of all of these Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today on your favorite app, and while you're there, we'd love it if you'd give us a review. I'm talking with John Lauk, author of the new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, which seeks to shed light on the history of the region in the long 19th century, which he feels is often overlooked and mischaracterized. Here's the rest of our conversation. So as far as some of the, the great achievements that you do highlight to either counter people who don't focus on the Midwest at all or maybe bring too much of a negativity to it, despite many of the issues that you do bring up, uh, one of the big claims that you make here is that the Midwest of the long 19th century constituted the most advanced democratic society that the world had seen to date, which I don't think a lot of people – when they, if they heard that phrase in isolation, I doubt the Midwest would be on their list of guesses at what you might be talking about. So I know you, you briefly mentioned a couple of these advances, but tell us a little bit more about that. What did that look like? Well, again, the first thing you need to know is what was going on in other countries. I mean, these other countries were monarchies in which an aristocracy ran the country. There were no civil rights, uh, very few voting rights. And so have that context in mind when you delve into what's happening in the Midwest. So in the early uh, 19th century, uh, very early on, uh, Ohio starts the process of basically having universal manhood suffrage uh, for um, white men above, say, 18 years of age. Now, this doesn't sound very progressive to us in 2022, but this was an amazing achievement and advancement in 1800. And, you know, even, even there, and what I think people need to understand is there was even a very robust debate about extending suffrage to African Americans in early Ohio. Uh, at that first Ohio Constitutional Convention, they actually passed uh, a provision uh, extending suffrage to African-Americans. At the end of the convention, it was repealed uh, for unclear reasons. I mean, it's the records aren't super clear, but I'm just highlighting that they actually had a debate about it. And this begins uh, a process of universal suffrage uh, throughout the Midwest, and soon there was a robust debate about extending this to African Americans, and it was extended to many Native Americans. Um, there was also, uh, midway through the century, a debate about extending suffrage to women. 
And slowly, uh, women gained the right to vote in municipal and local elections, and then they could vote in school board elections. And pretty soon, women became much more active in civic clubs and abolitionist societies and uh, began uh, demanding the full right to vote, full suffrage. And uh, we ran an article in Middle West Review about a year ago about how these Midwestern states uh, led the way uh, toward uh, suffrage rights for women. And also, there was a major effort to educate women. From the beginning, they had access to K-12 education, but Soon that was extended to college education. And many of these new colleges uh, formed in Ohio and Indiana and Michigan were co-education from the beginning. And they were also open to African-Americans. Now, this is stuff I don't think people know. And it it was rather surprising to me when I ran across uh, a fair amount of this. I should say, too, that one of the reasons I came to know about the early advances in women's college co-education was because of a woman from Nebraska. I believe her name was Clara Berwick Colby. And we ran an article about her in Middle West Review. And she was extremely active uh, in these suffrage societies and abolitionist societies, et cetera. Um, And she was one of the leaders. Uh, that brought suffrage to women uh, throughout the region. And, you know, I would read stories about these little towns in Kansas who had woman uh, mayors in the 19th century. Again, a a kind of forgotten or unknown history um, that I think um, should be better known. And I I do think it does counterbalance some of these uh, darker portrayals of the American past. And, so I'm glad you brought up this question, Tom, because, you know, as I thought about this book, I'm like, I began to make comparisons, like what's going on in France? What's going on in England? I'm like, well, the American Midwest was miles ahead of these other places in terms of democracy and openness and a free society and civil rights. And it became fairly obvious that there weren't other places in the world that were more small D democratic. So I, I think there'll be a, a good debate about that, but I, I feel very strong about the claim. So to compare it to regions in the U.S., why was it that the Midwest culture allowed for some of these adman- advancements in democracy that the South, the North, the West did not always? Well, uh, t- take, for example, New England, which many people know very well. New England ended up being dominated by a very narrow uh, theocratic group. We know them as the Puritans or the Congregationalists. Um, And it was uh, a society run by them. And and they taxed every citizen of those states to pay for the Puritan churches of New England. That didn't happen in the Midwest. Um, The Midwest was much more mixed society. Yes, there were some Puritans from New England who moved in there, but there were also Pennsylvania Quakers and Pennsylvania Germans and Episcopalians from Virginia and upcountry Southerners. And then you had this big wave of immigrants coming from England, 
or excuse me, from Ireland and Germany, and a big chunk of those people were uh, Catholics, which threw another monkey wrench into things in the Midwest. What I'm saying is there was a very diverse society, which nobody, no one group tended to dominate, and therefore there was this loose democratic pluralism that emerged. In fact, the whole idea of a workable democratic pluralism in the United States emerged out of Wisconsin. Um, There was a young scholar there who moved there from the coast, Horace Callan, and he noticed all these different ethnic groups and religious groups living in basic harmony in Wisconsin, and he was a bit shocked by it. So he uh, coined this theory of American pluralism that we still know today. We don't associate it with Horace Callan because the origins of it have been lost. But um, this fostered a culture of openness and um, tolerance that prevailed in a lot of Midwestern states. Now, of course, there were shortcomings. There were places that it did not unfold as it should. And there are obviously people who um, didn't meet the ideals uh, set forth by the Midwest or some of the creators and framers of the of the region. But it it did tend to work. And then there were, I think, some key leaders uh, who contributed to uh, these democratic advances in the Midwest. And once you had some success and once you began to implement your ideals, you began to build on those ideals and kind of enforce those ideals. So, um, and then I think another force at work, especially prior to the Civil War, was this feeling that, you know, we've kind of gotten it right in the Midwest, whereas across the Ohio River, this that region is doing everything wrong and they have they live with the stain of slavery and this was especially true during the civil war when a lot of troops from the midwest went south and they could see what the south was really like and it reinforced for them how much they had achieved uh back in their homes uh in the north so I think there was a lot of ingredients to this and a lot of factors, but those are some of the main ones. It's also interesting to think about the Midwest as both agrarian and intellectual and having this philosophy behind it and being this arts hub that kind of can encompass all of that. I mean, you mentioned Willa Cather earlier, and look, I've had to read many, many Willa Cather books, but it's still hard for me to wrap my mind mind around this idea that Midwest art was kind of its own hub and that it it appealed to people outside of the Midwest, that it wasn't stuck in this sort of regional loop of regional readers. Why was it yeah. that like Cather was able to break out, other than the fact that she did eventually move to New York? Well, I think this is true. I mean, one of the things that Cather um, did was she be- she moved to Pittsburgh, I believe, at first, and worked for McClure's and got connected into the publishing world. And so she knew who to send her manuscripts to. So that was obviously a big, big advantage for her. And she was very smart about it. Um, But I I like how you sort of highlight this, this particular time and place where there were all these Midwestern voices and prominent writers. 
um, I edited a book for Hastings College Press there in Nebraska a few years ago, and we gave it the title The Midwestern Moment. And we were talking about this time from, say, 1890 to 1930 or so, when all these prominent voices were coming out of the Midwest, um, Sinclair Lewis, for example, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and, of course, Cather is a good example of this, Ernest Hemingway. Um, it was kind of a golden moment. And there's, um, I did this book a few years ago called From Warm Center to Ragged Edge, and it's about these regional writers and this moment, uh, this burst of creative energy back then. And the phrase um, warm center, which is a shortened form of the warm center of the world, was a phrase drawn from F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, The Great Gatsby when he was talking about traveling back to the Midwest and to Minnesota in particular. And uh, he was he was dreaming of escaping the chaos of Manhattan and getting back to the warm center of the world in Minnesota, which I always loved and thought was a great phrase. But yes, there was this um, very important moment. Now, unfortunately, with the coming of World War II and the coming of mass culture and television and the erosion of some of these uh, regional, strong regional organizations, uh, we kind of lost that that nucleus of of mainstream and prominent Midwestern voices. Here's one thing that happened that is very unfortunate, and it's got a it's got a major Nebraska angle to it. The primary American history professional organization in this country is called the Organization of American Historians, the OAH. Well. That is a nationalized form of an organization that was once very regional. It was formed in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1907 as a regional organization to focus on studying the history of the Midwest, and it thrived and was a great organization for many years. But in the 1960s, they had a meeting and they decided to nationalize it and to make it uh, focus on all of American history, which... I, I get it. We needed an organization like that, but unfortunately it left the Midwest without a structured entity to focus on promoting Midwestern history. And this was a problem for many, many years. I mean, in other regions, there was a very active Western history association, Southern history association, but there was not one for the Midwest. So several years ago, well, 2014, not that long ago, some of us got together and decided we need to fix this problem and get back to those days when we had a organization that focused on the Midwest and we formed the Midwestern History Association. That was in 2014, which the process of organizing it did include a major meeting in Omaha. Um, we finally launched it uh, in 2014, though. But these kinds of organizations need to thrive and grow and become more robust and have more publications and have more support from universities and more support from Midwestern states. Um, and, you know, what they really need, since I'm talking to you in Omaha, well, what they really need is for Warren Buffett to endow a Midwestern history 
organization that could fund books and journals and research fellowships that focus on Midwestern life and history. That would be uh, a grand plan. It just came to me as we're sitting here thinking, Tom, so who knows, maybe some good will come up out of it. Well, hopefully Warren's listening. I don't know if he does, but uh, one can hope. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with John Lauk, author of the new book, The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 with whatever is on your mind this week, whether it's Midwestern related or not, and we may play it in one of our upcoming shows. I do wonder, as we talk about the the Midwest in its context of the long 19th century, but we're talking from the current day, we're talking from the 21st century now, um, I wonder if you'd say that there's somewhat of an implicit arc to your work and to some of your, some of your other, to your book and some of your other works which is that there's reason to be proud. There's reason to be optimistic uh, when you think about the advancements in democracy that existed in the Midwest that were kind of unique to the Midwest, to its fabric, to its DNA. But when we think about it now, do you feel like it's sort of like you've been tracking the rise from the context of the fall of the Midwest, which used to have this ideal and now is maybe struggling to live up to those same ideals? Well... I, I will confess to you, and I've not uh, said this to anybody else yet, because I hate to get, I hate for the cart to get too far in front of the horse. Um, and I guess I'm sort of, um, um, I don't want to talk about things before I get them mapped out. Um, but I have thought about. Well, maybe the next step in this progression is a book about the post. 1965 Midwest. And uh, I was just actually reading the other day one of these books about the deindustrializing Midwest. This was a book about Akron. Uh, but last summer I read a book about Lancaster, Ohio. And I know there's a good one out there about Appleton, Wisconsin, about what happened to these cities in, you know, say the 1970s to the present when they lost the local plant and all the jobs vanished and the union fell apart and all these guys mostly guys not all guys but all these guys who had 40 hour a week jobs where they could support a full family and maybe have a lake cabin up north and send their kids to college those those uh jobs are gone and those days are gone and you can see it when you drive through some of these cities and so, yeah, that's that's uh, something we have to grapple with. I mean, I'm more familiar. I grew up on a farm in South Dakota, so I'm more familiar with the agrarian side of this. And we had my father's funeral two weeks ago. He was 90 years old, but he grew up on a little farm up by Junius, South Dakota, and my mom did too. And every section had three or four farm families on it and they raised big families and they all learned how to work and they all went to church and knew how to behave. But you know, that world is kind of gone. There's uh, most of those old farms have been rolled up into 10,000 acre operations and um, it's different. It's not the 19th century Midwest uh, that we once knew. And, of course, we all have driven through rural Nebraska or the rural Dakotas, rural Iowa, and we see the struggles on Main Street. 
And um, now, on the other, on the flip side, there are places that are prospering. Uh, there are cities in the Midwest that are doing extremely well now. I think of Grand Rapids, and I think of Des Moines and Minneapolis, and uh, you'll have to tell me about Omaha. It feels like it's doing fairly well, but. You know, the old industrial towns and the rural areas, they're suffering. So, I mean, I'm not blind to these things, Tom, and I think we need to assess it and make sense of it. And I haven't done so yet. I'm still kind of processing, you know, what what we say about this and, and you know, how we make adjustments to this this new order, uh, this this new way the Midwest is structured in terms of its population and occupations and and all of that. And I always think we can have more more um, civic energy and small d democratic energy. I, um, I read in the paper the other day about the end of the Iowa caucuses and for the Democrats. I'm like, this is a terrible mistake. This is a great um lifeline for you know democratic and civic life in the midwest and i hate to see it vanish so these are all things uh, i have been thinking about and i don't have great answers for but i i would wouldn't mind spending a couple of years thinking about them well if you do uh you'll have to come back i'd love to read that um but before i do let you go and one last thing i do want to mention because your book ends with a complaint about terry gross and uh, as, a, as an NPR guy who does long-form conversations, I got to say, I probably like Terry Gross more than I like the Midwest overall. Big fan. But um, you talk about an interview she did with an author, Tim O'Brien, where she's talking uh, a little bit uh, judgmentally about Tim O'Brien's father, uh, who lived in a small agrarian town. I think he was a farmer. Uh, and the idea was essentially that, you know, where he came from was where dreams go to die in the Midwest. And, you know, I think understandably you were not a fan of that framing that she was giving it. Um, but you know what, when, when we think about what you were just talking about, and I think about some of the issues that come up on the show, which are like brain drain, people leaving the Midwest, if they have dreams that are going to have to take them to a coast, for example, or I think about this election that we just covered, which so much of it was about how can we make voting harder and how can we, you know, talk about censoring schools that aren't patriotic enough, as opposed to these ideas of advanced democracy. I don't know. I, sometimes I'd like to think that you're right. And I'd like to think that Terry is not being uh, – Terry – I'd like to think Terry's being too harsh. But yeah. sometimes I'm skeptical. And I, I guess I'd like to hear your case for the opposite. Why is it that the Midwest is a place where we should believe that dreams can still flourish, that people should stay, that they should have hope for its future? Well, I should say Terry Gross was talking about Tim O'Brien's father when he was living in a little town in Minnesota in the 1950s or 60s. So this was, you know, back when there was, you know, a lot of things that were good in small Minnesota towns. And I love Terry Gross, too. I listen to her all the time. I rarely miss a show. But, you know, she's from Philadelphia, and she has her certain interests, and they do not include what happens in small towns in Minnesota, let's face it. Uh, But yet, all these Midwestern states, they run Terry Gross's interviews on their airwaves. I mean, we should develop a Midwestern Terry Gross. Maybe that's you, Tom. Maybe you are the future voice of this region. But we need someone who kind of pays attention to what's going on here just a little bit more, I think. Um, and that would help the civic life of 
of Nebraska and the Midwest more generally. I should say, speaking of Terry Gross, too, that this book opens with me listening to Terry Gross while driving through the rural Midwest. And it involved, well, it was the week that Hugh Hefner died. And Hugh Hefner's parents, it turns out, were from Holdridge, Nebraska. And she played an old interview that she had run of Terry Gross or of Hugh Hefner when he was still alive. And he was talking about his parents being these terrible Puritans and stuff. Uh, And as it turns out, uh, they were very nice people from a little town in Nebraska who left a lot of money to Nebraska Wesleyan and funded a lot of charities in their small town. So I thought that was a good opportunity for people to see the flip side of what, what was being said in that Terry Gross conversation. But, but no, I, I don't think it's a good idea to abandon hope. We need to keep hope alive. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of good people in the Midwest, just like that young man last week who messaged me on Twitter and said, I hear you're trapped at the Omaha airport. Here's my car. You're welcome to use it. There's a lot of people like that out there, Tom. Well, thank you for giving me some hope. I appreciate it. And thank you as well for giving me a lot to think about with your book, uh, The Good Country, which is available, I believe, wherever people can get books now. Is there anything else you want to plug before I let you go? (laughs) Well, uh, if there's any history folks out there or historians or writers, uh, every, every May we have the Midwestern History Conference in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We'd love to have you join us and and talk about the history of the Midwest. Well, John, thanks so much for talking to me today. This has been great. Thanks, Tom. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Mm-hmm.